Hello listeners. Welcome to Itihasa, a Indic history podcast. And you're listening to episode 29 of the season Vijayanagara. In the last two episodes, we explored Philip Wagner's fascinating research paper which argued that the Vijayanagara rulers in the interest of real politic at some point embraced the Islamic forms of costumes like kabai, kulai and few other aspects of the Islamic political language without actually becoming Islamic and this phenomenon is called as islamicization we also had looked at the aspects of political language and the role it played with the vijayanagara's royal court and its polity and finally we also saw how all of this served a specific purpose of helping a powerful hindu empire navigate and thrive in an age of sultans with this episode we will resume the art and architecture series as i indicated previously this series will be released in batches spread across the length of the season and alternating with episodes on other aspects of the vijayanagara history this is to keep the threat of monotony at bay and to spice things up in order to keep the show's flow interesting for the listeners who might want to experience some palace intrigues drama suspense and action in this episode we will look at not just the legacy of vijayanagara when it came to temples and sculptures but we will also look at the evolution of art and culture as a result of political developments that took place in the empire during the 16th and 17th centuries as part of the research for this episode one of my main sources has been crispin branfords research papers by titles in a land of kings donors elite and temple sculpture published in 2011 and another paper expanding form the architectural sculpture of the south indian temple from 1500 to 1700 ce crispin branford is a senior lecturer in south asian art and archaeology at soas and is a renowned expert in mughal portraiture south asian portraiture and indian history having worked in this capacity at both the Ashmolean and the British Museum the Vijayanagara empire and its successor states had dominated south india for more than 300 years and this was a period of great political and cultural activity that was very dynamic in nature this episode focuses on some specific aspects of the art and architecture in south indian temples during the 16th century vijayanagara and 17th century post vijayanagara period that is based on the earlier mentioned research the whole vijayanagara history in short can be broken down into four main phases one is the foundational phase of the 14th and 15th centuries the following peak phase of the first half of the 16th century the post talikota phase when the empire started declining and finally the nayaka phase wherein the regional vassals started exerting their dominance at the expense of the imperial authority as the power of the vijayanagara raya fades away over this long period there were several interrelated trends in the depiction of royal and elite figures across south india 
the increasingly widespread image of royal or elite figures in the sculptural repertoire of the South Indian temple stands out remarkably. If listeners remember the first three episodes from the Art and Architecture series, I'd spoken at length about the trends of shallow and deep relief style sculptures being carved in various sizes, shapes by the Vijayanagar artisans on Gopuras, Vidyashankara temple and also on the Mahanavimidibba. If one observes closely, all these followed some specific patterns and styles that were in vogue or popular in their respective ages. These styles and patterns went through an evolutionary arc over the life of the empire. By the beginning of the 16th century, Vijayanagara was at the height of its power in every sense, from military, economic, cultural, religious, artistic and architectural standpoints. The glorious reign of Sri Krishnadevaraya had seen the focus of artisans shift primarily from the glory of the empire to the glory of the emperor and elites that followed the emperor. This then brought about an inevitable change in the perspective adopted by the Vijayanagara artisans who then started producing art and architecture in a way that put the spotlight on the individuals from the royalty, nobility and elite. So if up until the end of the 15th century, the primary focus of the artisans was on the depiction of courtly, royal life, cultural, religious aspects, the 16th century saw that focus shift to the emperor himself and who was then put in the center of all those aspects. What this invariably led to was an explosion in the attention to the details in a sculpture or the depictions of the royal and elite figures and hence allowing the viewer to perceive these visual elements as portrait images of known personalities of their age. These artistic trends clearly culminated in the later 16th and 17th century images of life-size royalty, with their hands in Anjali Mudra, in prominent positions within a temple, that boldly engaged the viewer, both devotees and passing deities, in procession. Crispin Branford points out that these striking and innovative examples of sculpture within the broad South Asian artistic tradition provide an important evidence for the changed notion of God-King relationships during that period. In the previous Art and Architecture episodes, we saw how the Vijayanagara era is notable for the great variety of small low-relief images of deities, ascetics, hunters, dancing women, musicians, animals and royal figures. Though the thing to observe is that many of these royal images were located within large narrative scenes, showing a king hunting, watching an army parade, musicians or dancers, or granting audience while seated to a group of visitors. Then we have some small scenes depict a royal figure worshipping before a deity, often a particular deity, from an important pilgrimage spot, such as the Venkateshwara temple at Tirumala Tirupati or Narasimha temple at Ahavalam. The common thing that all these small sculptures share 
is that they visually engaged with other sculptures within the relief and this is very much in contrast to many royal elite and donor sculptures or life sized images of the 16th and 17th century that instead directly look at the viewer or at us in addition to this there was another interesting aspect to these artistic developments and it was what we call donor images basically these were royal images or sculptures that were commissioned or funded by generous benefactors who mostly belonged to the elite and merchant class such donor images are usually no more than 40 to 50 cm high and are sculpted in high relief on a stone slab or rock surface particularly in the deccan large steels think of them as stone frames with visual elements sculpted within them which were then mounted on columns pillars or at times were stand alone standing frames so these steels were around 1 meter wide and 2 meter high and within temples that record donations to the presiding deity above the text a small panel may contain a sun and moon but from 15th century onwards these frames were joined by small donor images of royalty in anjali mudra wearing the characteristic elite dress and the vijayanagara dynastic emblem of the boar and the sword sadly enough a donor's generosity usually remained obscure by an inscription that was not easily read by all viewers but such royal images above the text acted as a visual reminder of a donor's benefaction one of the most interesting and important contributions of vijayanagara empire to the art and architecture in the realms of temple building was a phenomenon of mass reproduction of sculptures of a variety of shapes and sizes and finally the innovations in the aspects of pillar designs or also the column designs with the advent of the printing press in the 16th century europe and its proliferation into indian subcontinent by the 20th century the mass reproduction of printed images of deities had proliferated and spread beyond the temple and into the home and marketplace and in the 21st century with the proliferation of 3d printers we ourselves at home can print such images or sculptures very easily but this wasn't the case in the 16th century temples of vijayanagara obviously in this case the mass reproduction took place in the form of stone sculptures carvings and images on the many pillars and columns that were part of a temple complex especially the mandapa structures that were a signature element of vijayanagara temple complexes the ever expanding size of vijayanagara temples in south india ensured that a great variety of images of deities and other figures were seen all through the temples on walls column surfaces and the superstructure of gopuras if listeners remember i had mentioned in the gopura episode on how the vijayanagara temple building style was inspired by and followed the tamil dravidian tradition of architecture across the empire by the 16th century this invariably also imported the tamil form of column with flat surfaces and which became a very common appearance which continues to this day 
This is very much in contrast to the cylindrical lathe turned columns and pillars of the Deccan and the Hoysalas that had been previously more prevalent. In this context it's worth pointing out again how the art and architecture took shape evolved and gradually went out of trend by the end or beginning of an era due to various factors. A typical 16th century Vijayanagara column in a temple was divided into 3 cubes separated by octagonal or 16-sided sections and each cube on the column offered four sides and hence a 100 column mandapa could allow up to 1200 low and high relief sculptures carved onto them in many temples there could be well over a thousand such columns and the number of sculptures across the entire temple complex would have been mind boggling the even more stunning aspect is that most of the time the images on each of these columns were unique and rarely repeated too often variety and not homogeneity was the name of the game this is very much in stark contrast to the european and islamic architecture wherein homogeneity was very much the norm and complex variety was frowned upon This again beautifully illustrates the essential difference between the philosophical and ideological perspectives embraced by the Indic and Dharmic systems and then the Abrahamic and Islamic systems on the other hand coming back to the temple reliefs when one factors in all the reliefs and sculptures within the recesses of a shrine or mandapa's basement and all the plaster images on the many entrance gateways or gopuras then it is obvious that a single 16th century south indian temple may have had far more images than any earlier structure a striking feature of the proliferation of this shallow relief sculpture is the many royal images appear alongside the forms of shiva vishnu devi acharyas ascetics dancers hunters and musicians these images of royalty or elites are usually shown in an anjali mudra holding a sword or staff wearing a kulai or other forms of headwear with perhaps a scarf over one arm but some royal images on a small scale and in relief are in particular locations within a temple that suggests their intended purpose as donor portraits such donor portraits are normally of larger man with smaller male or female figures often his relatives alongside all standing in an anjali mudra looking outward one example amongst many that could be cited across south india is a donor portrait group of the merchant patron of the Ketapai Narayana temple at Bhatkal in Kanara dating back to the 1540 CE Bhatkal is 165 km north of Mangalore located along a very picturesque coastline highway because of its location it served as the premier port for trade between the Vijayanagara empire and the arabs in the 16th century we saw in the previous episodes how many well known travelers including Domingo Pais have also mentioned about this port 
in their accounts of India. The Vijayanagara Empire needed horses for its armies. Therefore, fine Arabian horses were imported through the ports of Kanara, such as Bhatkal. The products shipped through Bhatkal to Arabia included spices such as pepper, ginger and cardamom and traded items such as iron and textiles in return for the horses, copper and gold. However, it did not last more than a century at the most and its importance was replaced by Basroor, a port further down south. So coming back to the Ketapai Narayana temple, it's actually one of a cluster of five temples built by Ketapai Narayana, a jeweler who had come from Goa along with his five sons. In that donor portrait group, on the Garuda Stamba, one can see a male figure measuring 48 cm high stands alongside a shorter female on the shaft of the Garuda Stamba, facing towards the objects of his devotion within the temple. On the base below, a wider panel depicts a row of five pairs of small and similar couples. This relief at Bhatkal, like many other examples, has relatively small images of donors visually engaging with the deity. I want to remind the listeners to keep checking the show notes to follow the episode as we go about using the visual elements. Another parallel development in the column sculpture of 16th century temples was a creation of larger and more prominent royal images alongside those of deities. The Bugga Ramalingeshwara temple in Tadipatri, for example, has standing male portrait figures in Anjali Mudra appearing before the outermost niches alongside Nataraja and Bhikshatana, with men leaning on staff by the gateway. On the opposite Gopra, a similar portrait image is placed in front of a narrow split column niche on the northeast side. Do check the episode show notes for the images of this temple. A similar style of putting royal images or donor portraits alongside deities on a similar scale is also seen at the Shaiva Vidya Shankara temple at Sringeri. The same temple we explored in the second episode of the Art and Architecture series. One interesting thing worth mentioning here in the context of the Vidya Shankara temple is Crispin Brantford claims that Sringeri Vidya Shankara temple was built in mid 16th century. Whereas if you remember the Vidya Shankara temple episode and mentioned that it was built in mid 14th century by the Sangama brothers. In light of that, I have to now reveal to the listeners about the supposed controversy or confusion around the exact time it was built. On one hand, the temple exhibits a classic fusion of Hoysala and Dravida temple styles and on the other hand, like Crispin rightly points out, there are some Tuluva temple design elements in it. And Crispin makes a compelling argument by showing the styles of the sculpture as being more closer to the 16th century than the 14th century. But again, we won't be trying to unravel that supposed confusion or mystery. But instead, we will go with the widely accepted construction date of the mid-14th century for now. Maybe that aspect of Vidya Shankara temple can be dealt in a separate episode of its own if time permits. 
moving on, so one of the most striking and innovating features of 16th century temple sculpture is the development of a figural composite column. From the 13th century, a simple five-part column with three cubical blocks separated by two octagonal or 16-sided sections were imported by Vijayanagara artisans from the Tamil style. And the Vijayanagara artisans adapted and innovated on this column in a masterful way by increasingly adding a single or three smaller colonnades. So colonnades, visualize colonnades as columns within columns. So to create a composite column. The majestic Vithala temple at Hampi displays some beautiful examples of these innovations. The outer open mandapa of the temple is dated to 1554 CE. And this includes some of the first and finest examples of column development that attained its peak further south in Tamil provinces in the following century. The images of deities on these composite columns in the mid-16th century are around uh, one meter high, but gradually they get larger and more sculpturally advanced, demonstrating considerable artistic skill in such a hard stone medium. From the mid-16th century, royal images are also located on these composite columns alongside the increasingly widespread depiction of deities. A good example is the open mandapa of the 16th century Kodandarama temple at Vontimitta in Andhra Pradesh. Do check the corresponding show notes to look at the temple pictures. The composite column forms are reminiscent of the contemporary mandapa of the Vithala temple mentioned earlier. Around the interior space of this mandapa are yali columns. But the exterior ones all have attached deity and royal figures around 1 meter in height. These two trends, that is larger royal images within a temple's iconographic program of sacred images and the prevalence of donor portraits, combined in the later 16th century and especially the 17th century in the Tamil country to create this striking life-sized, fully round images of royalty in prominent locations throughout the many huge temple complexes. The temple complexes which developed in the Vijayanagara and post-Vijayanagara Naika era. One of the most popular and often cited examples is the series of 10 life-size images of Tirumala Nayaka and his predecessors with queens alongside in the new mandapa built on the east side of the Meenakshi Amman temple in Madurai. And this was built around 1630 CE. This indeed is an excellent example, but it is one of the over 150 examples of life-sized portrait sculptures attached to composite columns in temples built during the 16th and 17th century in the Tamil region. All of these life-sized portrait sculptures in the Tamil region adhere to a standard depiction, standing in Anjali Mudra. Crispin Branford asks an interesting question here. He asks, who then are these royal portrait sculptures respectfully greeting? A 21st century visitor, a pilgrim or a deity? These portrait sculptures are not usually located facing the main image in the Garbhagriha of a temple. However, but are found elsewhere in the temple complexes and not apparently greeting anyone. And which is why understanding and appreciating 
the importance of movement in the temples and temple complexes is important especially during the festival processions of deities if one observes closely they will see that most of the royal portrait sculptures are located primarily in corridors in the gateways of the gopurams and in festival mandapas which are usually the procession routes or points through which either the deities pass through or are crucially presented hence the portrait images or lifestyle sculptures of the kings in anjali mudra are placed to greet deities when they are moving and throned on the temple radham during festivals the sculptures standing at these points with their hands folded in a praying manner symbolizes the king virtually having a darshana of the deity and this symbolic representation of the delicate moment between the king's representation and the presiding deity is witnessed by the devotees and ordinary worshippers visiting the temple and further enhancing the king's reputation as the one who is eternally in the service of the deity protector regent on earth for the deity and as a result further legitimizing his unique role as a link between the divine and the mundane the king an often inaccessible figure in the palace is given permanent residence in the temple in a life size representation and in locations there that are widely accessible and visible it's important to stress the fact that these statues and figures used to be in full color anatomically similar richly decorated in a lifelike representation just like how we see many celebrities being represented through their lifelike wax statues in madame tussauds museum so were these statues so one can imagine the near excitement of the poor or rich citizens of the empire who used to look at these sculptures unfortunately there were no smartphones back then in the 15th and 16th century or else no doubt that even they would have eagerly taken a bunch of selfies with these lifelike statues the great volume of examples of life sized fully round anatomically detailed or high relief portrait images of royal and elite figures in the tamil region during the 16th and 17th centuries is striking while similar images of royalty at vijayanagara and across the deccan are small figures with narrative reliefs or relief donor figures which are only up to 50 cm high the column figures at vantamitta in andhra pradesh mentioned earlier and the royal portrait figures at ahabalam in karnool district andhra pradesh and chandakesava temple at sompalayam andhra pradesh demonstrate that the deccan or more specifically rail seema in southwestern andhra has a modest number of examples of this cultural trend towards large detailed visually prominent portrait images of royal and elite within a vijayanagara temple context crispin in his paper points to investigating the wider artistic developments across south asia in the 16th and 17th century in order to better understand why portraiture became such a significant genre of architectural sculpture in temples of south india he observes how the mughal court painting 
and its relationship with the coat painting traditions in Rajasthan the Pahari Hill region and the Deccan had its links with the influence of the Europeans who arrived in South Asia from 1500 onwards and he claims that the appearance of major life size sculptures of individual kings and figures in South India during the later years of Vijayanagara and Nayaka period seems to coincide with these developments the point being that the arrival of europeans at the courts and ports of south asia bearing examples of contemporary western visual culture might have had some effect on the royalty and polity of the 16th century vijayanagara and the 17th century nayaka states having said that crispin is careful enough to mention the indigenous precedents and in the genre of art he concedes that while there is possibility of outside influence the present evidence suggests that in both painting and sculpture portraiture became a more significant artistic genre in several regions of south asia during the 16th and 17th centuries the move towards the production of life size royal images in temples may have been stimulated by the changing nature of kingship in Nayaka era Tamil Nadu there is notable contrast between Chola kingship and that of the Vijayanagara or Nayaka kings and this is reflected in the production and use of royal images the pervasive anonymity of Chola period kings is replaced by an increasing stress on individual leaders of Vijayanagara and Nayaka period This is even more intensely prevalent in the Nayaka period when compared to the Vijayanagara era. The inflation of the Nayaka king to divine status in the period's literature is a recurring theme. Interesting thing was during the Vijayanagara era the king used to be more dependent on the deity for keeping his legitimacy in the eyes of his subjects. If you remember I had spoken at length about this in the episode the prisoner of hampi whereas in the nayaka period this ideas flipped on its head instead while nayaka kings were still subservient to the deity in the traditional manner the deity is now far more dependent on the king the temple and court are merged to a much greater degree than before the late vijayanagara period towards its decline and the nayaka period also saw a contemporary decline in the prevalence of temple inscriptions and saw an increase in the proliferation of life-sized and relief portrait sculptures this is important to acknowledge so that the decline in temple inscriptions wouldn't be mistaken for a decline in the patronage of temples during these specific periods instead what this suggests is a shift in the medium of expression by that i mean the way a temple's patronage was recorded had changed from inscriptions to a much more visible prominent and flamboyant statement of a donor's benefaction to a temple and relationship with the deity which was in the form of an image of the king himself in the appropriate attitude of worship and devotion and the life-size royal images that became prevalent especially during decline of vijayanagara and peaked by the time of post vijayanagara nayaka era ought to be looked at 
as a means of projecting an aura of authority in an unstable and politically volatile era which means they are a visual embodiment of the god king relationship that makes it so different and special when compared with the proper vijayanagara period and the chola period in short with the collapse of vijayanagara its vassals reclaim their independence and authority in a short order and each of them projected themselves as a new force to be revered and feared so this led to a need for an evolution of a new art form and this art form came in the shape of the life-size sculptures and donor figures or portraitures that we discussed so far and with this we shall end this episode and i sincerely hope the listeners enjoyed this in-depth episode on art architecture and how the shifting trends in the imagery of the period reflected the shifting socio-cultural and political sands of south india if you like the episode please hit the subscribe button and leave a rating and a review wherever it is that you're listening a huge thank you for taking the time to listen to the show i hope to see you soon in the next episode Till then this is Narendra Vikram your host and narrator signing off hope you have a great week ahead